Right. Good morning, everybody. So we are continuing our study of systematic theology. Um, so does somebody want to tell me what systematic theology is and what the other kinds of theology are? What does systematic mean? And Well, first of all, what is theology? Study of God. Um, now, is it just the study of God himself or what? Or is it the study of kind of in a broader context? The broader context, isn't it? Because doesn't everything ultimately boil down to God or our relationship with him, right? So that's what theology is. And so what is systematic theology? Well, systematic theology is what? the Kind of the thinking of these different ideas or topics. It's almost like topical theology, right? So one of the first things that we talked about was um, uh, went through the theology of the Bible, the theology of God's Word. And so we talked about how it's inerrant and it's uh, authoritative and different things like that, right? Then we talked about um, God himself, and we talked about his triune nature, and we talked about um, his his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy and his wrath and different things like that. Then we moved to another topic and we began to talk about, well, Christology. We talked about Jesus and how he is fully human and he's fully divine. And the fact that we can't really put those two things together in our, in our minds. Oh, and by the way, today's going to be, we're going to get into something that we can't fully um, comprehend in our minds as well. Um, so, so as we, we've moved along, now we're in the topic of soteriology, which is the study of what? Salvation, okay? And so as we study um, salvation, there's different viewpoints, there's different ideas um, that have popped up through the history of the church that try to help us understand or explain the, um, our salvation and our relationship with God, the saving, saving nature of our relationship with God. And so um, in the early, what, uh, 17th century, which would have been the early 1600s, uh, there was a guy named Jacob Arminius um, who was teaching something uh, in the Netherlands, which was uh, contrary to the what we call the, the Reformed faith, which was the, the Dutch Reformed church of that time. And so um, once he died, his uh, followers put together uh, a document called the Remonstrance, um, which was means a, a protest. It's a protest against something. It was a protest against the, teach, the, the basic understanding of the, um, of the Reformed faith. And so um, this became known as Arminianism. And so in response to that, the, uh, a synod, um, a collection of churches in the area, uh, not only churches from ne the Netherlands, but also churches from England, Germany. I'm missing one. I know that there was three other places. Um, came together, they met, and they essentially put together a document that responded point by point to what the remonstrance um, contained. Okay? And it's known as the Canons of Dort. Um, you can see kind of the basic uh, things that we've talked about. Uh, sorry, the basic attributes of the, or, or background of the, the Canons of Dort. 
And um, so we are on like our fourth week. These are the, the basic sections that correspond to the points of the remonstrance. And each one of these sections is more than just a simple paragraph or it's just a simple statement. It's actually building a case, right? And so the, the, each one of these sections, which I say point here, I should probably say section, each one of these sections begins with a basic statement that all of Christianity should understand or should agree with. And then it builds a, toward a case where, uh, Somewhere in the middle of the section, you'll have an article which explains the entire um, doctrine. Okay, so for example, in the um, in the first section, divine election and reprobation, it begins with God's um, uh, God's uh, right to essentially save who He wants to save. Then it builds up the the case to the reformed um, reformed faith within um, article number seven of that section. Okay. And each one of these sections are like that. So, may have grayed that out a little bit too much, but last week we started on section two, and we went through the first five articles, um, beginning with the punishment when, uh, which God's justice requires, and then building up to the last one that we talked about was the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. So today we're going to pick up in article six, and then, pretty much right when we get started, we're going to kind of go uh, follow a rabbit trail. We're going to talk about a, a special topic that I know is kind of near and dear to everybody's heart. So, I know you're wondering what it is. We'll find out here, here soon enough, all right? So, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, once again, we thank you uh, for this time to, uh, to come together uh, to study who you are, to study um, the salvation that you have for us. Um, help us to, to understand this. Help us to uh, know nothing but truth. And Father, uh, please help us have patience with one another where we may disagree with one another. Father, we love you. We trust you. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right, Article 6, I probably should have put Article 5 since Article 6, six starts with however. Article 5 was the mandate to proclaim the gospel to all. Okay? Article 6 says, However, that, may, uh, that many who have been called through the gospel do not repent or believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, is not because the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross is deficient or insufficient, but because they themselves are at fault. Okay? Now, we've spent a lot of time in the last several weeks talking about divine election and God's sovereignty, okay? This is something that is, I don't want to say opposed to that um, or contradictory to that, but it's something that, quite honestly, in our finite minds is very difficult to reconcile with God's sovereignty. How God can be sovereign, um, on the one hand, God is ultimately sovereign, but on the other hand, we're responsible for our actions, right? So there's a, there's a tension between those two things. And so what we find is that both sides of that equation are, or both poles of that are um, taught in the Bible, throughout the Bible, but the Bible never attempts to reconcile those two things. 
And the reason I think the Bible never tries to reconcile those two things is because we couldn't understand it. Because we're, we're, we're a finite minds, and what we're talking about is something that is, is in, in God's understanding. Does that make sense? So there's some things that, that um, are true about God that we can't comprehend, and we honestly, we just have to, to believe. And we have to trust. Make sense? Okay. All right, so here we are. So on the one hand, salvation is solely a work of the grace and mercy of God. We don't cooperate with Him. You know, it's God is is sovereign. Okay? Uh, You've been predestined since um, before the foundation of the earth uh, to... To, to be saved, or to not be saved. Um, but on the other hand, if you don't believe, you'll be held accountable for your own disbelief, bearing the full weight of a just punishment. Okay, So those are the two poles, things that we don't, don't understand. Now, I know normally I got the questions in red as we go along that I'm interacting. Um, feel free to, to chime in whenever you want to, because I don't have a whole lot of questions up here today. All right? So... John MacArthur, which honestly I don't quote John MacArthur very often, but um, when he was teaching on this, he said, I want to make you comfortable with your inability not to get it. Okay, And that's kind of one of the things that we're going to talk about today is we have this tendency in our, in our law, in, we have this tendency that when we hear something, we have to reconcile it. It drives us crazy when we can't reconcile something. Okay, so for, I'll give you an example. We talked about, um, we spent a lot of time talking about who Christ is. Christ is fully human. Christ is fully divine. Okay, and then um, those two natures are not confused. They are, they are distinct, but they are unified in one person. So those are like four principles of, of Christology. Okay, well, over the years, people have insisted that they're able to reconcile those things, right? So let me back up. So is there anybody, I think we all believe those four principles that I just stated. Fully divine, fully human, um, distinct, yet unified, right? Is there anybody in here that can reconcile those things? They explain how they work together. If you raise your hand and say yes, please don't, because you probably don't, we don't understand the questions involved, okay? But that hasn't stopped people over the years from trying to reconcile those things. And what they end up doing is watering down one truth or the other, right? If we, if we put everything in categories and ideas and words that we cannot, we can fully comprehend, okay? Um, then what we end up doing is sacrificing one of those truths or the other. And that's why we just have to hold them in tension, because he, he is who he is, okay? It's a similar thing with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We can't reconcile those two things. And if we try to say, well, this is the way that I understand it, then, okay, that might be the way that you understand it, but the, the question is, are, you, are we doing justice to both sides of the equation. Okay, does it make sense? All right.
So incomprehensible. Uh, the, so the first thing I want to talk about is God is incomprehensible. Okay, we see here in John 17, um, Jesus says, "And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have whom you have sent." Okay, the reason I put this here is because we have to understand that yes, we may know God truly. This here, what Jesus is saying is that you may know God and Jesus, and Jesus, the one whom he has sent. But then we have another side of the equation where it says in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are, as high, are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What this is saying is that, yeah, even though we may know God truly, we may not know him fully. In other words, we cannot comprehend God. There are going to be things about God that we cannot understand and that we will not understand. That doesn't mean that we are deficient. It means that we are finite. And it means that we are not God. Okay? And again, if we think there are certain things where if we, if we do think that we fully understand them, then we don't understand the question. So far, so good? Any questions so far? No? Okay. You're very quiet today. Okay, so here's uh, Romans 11 from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a rhetorical question, saying that nobody knows the mind of the Lord. Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So we, um, so again, what this is saying is that God is incomprehensible. Okay, so there are certain things that we're just never going to, never going to understand. All right, so when it comes to this, I'm going to throw my opinion out there real quick. We tend to confess things like the incomprehensibility of God in general, but we explain it away when it comes to particulars, right? Um, there's lots of things that we do. We, you know, we'll, we'll, um, for example, we, a lot of folks will say that um, they believe that God is incomprehensible, the Trinity is incomprehensible, and then turn around and say, well, the Trinity is like a clover, the three-leaf clover, okay? Or the Trinity is like water or something like that. And what it does is it um, denies um, one of the areas of the truths that we've learned, learned in Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay? And I think that this is a <clears throat> another example of that, right? We tend to confess that, that God is incomprehensible but then when we come to something like divine sovereignty and human responsibility, we insist on simplifying it and ultimately watering it down. Yes, sir? Mm. That's, a, that's actually a great point. Um, I think we could probably go in a lot of different directions here, but yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. 
um, <laughs> to go right. Well, that's a right. That's a great question. And so, so the idea there is is that God is incomprehensible, and we need to understand that we're not going to know everything that. Um, know everything about him. We're not going to know exactly how everything works out. There's going to be some mysteries out there. The Bible itself talks about mysteries. But at the same time, we don't want to pull up too short either, because there are some things that we can know. Okay? And if we think if if we can know something about God, then we 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 don't want to cry out mystery, you know, too 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 soon. So my thought is is that um there are it's uh not an either or. I'm not going to say it's a. I guess it would be a litmus test because a litmus test is a is a spectrum. It's kind of like on a spectrum. And I think where the Bible is clear, I think we emphasize boldness. And where the Bible is unclear, I think we emphasize humility. Okay. And so um, I think there's certain things like the trinitarian nature of God that we can be very bold about. We can be very bold that um, you know on on all sorts of doctrines. But I think that there are some other doctrines that are less clear, and I think we need to approach them with humility. Make sense? Yes, ma'am. You're trying to probe something that legitimately you, you can't fully understand. Do right. you... Do you give one of those cheesy examples with the caveat of this... this can't fully explain it, but here's a mediocre attempt? Or do you just say, look, we can't understand it and, do, and just move on? Right. <laughs> well, good question. I um, So how do you handle it when somebody is kind of probing and maybe going into areas where even angels feel fear to tread, right? Um, first of all, I don't think that... I'm not going to say that any questions are off bound, out, out of bounds, right? What happens is it's okay to ask questions, but it's the certainty of our answer that we have to be careful of, right? And so the idea there is is that, if again, if the Bible is clear on something, we can emphasize the boldness. But if, it is, um, if it's unclear on something, then we need to emphasize humility. We may believe something, but if we're going to teach others, we have to be careful about that. Make sense? Is, is may not be the right word to use because he is very comprehensible. He has given us perfect knowledge of who he is as he wants us to know. And so, and so one way, another way to say, I think what you're saying, what Stephen is getting to, is we have a ton, a ton of information about who God is, and it's all in Scripture. And so he is comprehensible perfectly through those eyes. And beyond that, we speculate. Okay. Well, well, incomprehensibility is the word that theologians have used for a really long time. No, but I'm just, I'm just and incomprehensibility means lack of ability means um, fully. And that's why I said earlier we can't fully understand him. Yeah. Right. But yeah. So to go along with what you're saying, George, what God has revealed to us is completely incomprehensible. But what He has revealed is not his complete nature. It's just, it's, 
it's beyond our ability to fully understand God. So he's and that's where fully, the incomprehensible comes right, in. He's not fully right. comprehensible. That it's not, it's not fully revealed. And there are things that he and there are things that he has revealed. Like for example, I think before you came in, the first example that I gave was Christology, or uh, we'll just go with the Trinity. Um, three persons, one being. We can't understand that. He's revealed that, but we can't understand how those things work together. And that's the point about the incomprehensibility of God. He is incomprehensible. We cannot comprehend him fully. We can know him, but we can't know him exhaustively. Right? And that's the... Bringing up a technical point, the word incomprehensible and what he's saying is Right. He can't fully know who God is. To say he's incomprehensible. I think uh, it'd be good to look up the definition of the word. So anyway. Right. All right. So, talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the first um, place we'll go is we'll look in Genesis 50. And of course, this is uh, Joseph interacting with his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And um, he says, as for you, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so what he's saying here is that the brothers had an idea of what they wanted to do. And they had evil intentions, and they carried it out. Meanwhile, God is using that for something good. And that good was essentially to bring um, the house of Jacob into Egypt and give them a place. Right, because that was God's plan from from eternity, and so we have the idea that we can have um, human will doing something and meaning evil, and at the same time, God is sovereign in in bringing about goodness. Right? You can also look at <clears throat> I think it's Isaiah ten, where God describes Assyria as what the rod of His anger. And it talks about how um, Assyria was um, haughty and boastful and wanting, wanting to just lay waste and do this and um, destroy things. And God used that to chastise his people. Okay? And so, um, so that, that's a second example. And a third one is in Acts 2, where Peter is, is preaching. And he, he basically, he says um, that God had laid out the plan from all eternity for Jesus um, to essentially die for his people, but you crucified him. And so it's your responsibility that he crucified, and you're going to be punished for that. But at the same time, that was God's plan from eternity. Okay? So those are things that we, we hold, in, hold in tension. Let's see, Matthew 11 starting verse 27. This is um, Jesus' teaching, of course. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, so here we have Jesus essentially um, teaching, preaching the, the sovereignty of God. Okay, um, 
Let's see. Except the, uh, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the, um, the Son chooses to reveal him. But then, all of a sudden, in the very next sentence, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavily, um, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's an open invitation to what? Belief. And so we have this idea of, and Jesus does this all the time. We're getting ready to hit John 6 again. And uh, it's the, the sort of thing where, where Jesus will teach in one sentence, he'll teach the sovereignty of God. And in the next sentence, he'll, he'll, he'll basically it'll be an invitation to believe. And so what happens is we have like um, Arminian folks will take that second part and deny the first. And the folks who we refer to as fatalists will take that first part and deny the second. Okay. And so what we have to do is we have to understand that they're, they're both ultimately true. Here's John 6. And if you remember several weeks ago, we started with John 6. Um, he said, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In other words, um, your problem is that you don't believe. And that's why you're going to be condemned, right? But he said, then all of a sudden he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So now all of a sudden he's flipping back from um, essentially uh, human responsibility back to divine sovereignty again. Does that make sense? Any thoughts, questions? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Yeah, actually, yeah. That um, I'll have to look at that one in a little more, but because normally it's the Father who we say that's the Father who elects, and then yeah, the Son carried it out. Right. Let's see. Right, and then in Philippians two, we have this idea that. Um, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who, who works in you. Okay. Now he's talking to believers here, right? And what he's saying is, is strive, strive for, you know, um, work, work out your salvation, work out your, um, your sanctification, um, live godly lives, honor God with what you do, strive, but it's God who is working in you. And not, not only, but, but because it is God who is working in you, okay? And so you can kind of see both sides of it here as well. Now, in reality, I didn't want to, I thought about bringing it up, um, up on the screen, but um, probably the, the biggest one, the, the best example, is actually when you look at um, Romans 9 and then Romans 10, okay? And what I'd encourage you to do is, if you're interested in this, um, read Romans 10 first, right? Read Romans 10, and um, what you'll see is that he begins the chapter by essentially praying for Israel, praying that 
essentially that they would be saved. Okay, and then he, um, you know, talks about uh, essentially wor- working things out. Okay, um, uh, inviting people to to believe in Christ, that sort of thing. And it's like when you're reading that, um, it, it just it doesn't seem like God's sovereignty is in view. It, if it, it reads like there's a, this element of human responsibility. It's that side of it. But then when you go and you read Romans 9, it's very interesting because what's the most famous passage in Romans 9? For Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. And so um, essentially what God is, what he's saying there is God elects those whom he elects, because it is God's good pleasure to elect them. And if someone wants to God to justify himself by saying, um, why did you do this, or why did you not elect this person, or why did you make me like this, then how does Paul respond to that? How would God respond to that? Who are you, O oh man, right, to answer back to God? Does the does the clay answer back to the potter? And so Romans 9 is a clear um, presentation of God's sovereignty. Okay, But then you, now you go to Romans 10 again, and it's this human responsibility. So biblically speaking, we have this idea that both sides of this equation are true. I shouldn't call it an equation. Both sides of this paradox, I don't, I don't know what to call it, um, are true. And we can't, um, we can't understand um, how those things fit together. And we never will. And the moment, again, the moment we think that we can do that, or the moment we oversimplify it, um, we're in trouble. All right. Any questions on that? Well, like I, like I explained, if we sacrifice one pole for the sake of the other. Right. Right. Article 7. Faith, God's gift. But all who genuinely believe and are delivered and saved by Christ's death from their sins and from destruction receive this uh, favor solely from God's grace, which God owes to no one, given to them in Christ from eternity. So here we have the idea that um, receive this uh, favor solely from God's grace. So belief, that is faith, is a result of God's grace, not the other way around. So when we say that grace precedes faith, it's kind of a cause and effect relationship. It's um, grace, uh, faith is a result of grace, not the other way around. Because if it's the other way around, then we're talking about Arminianism. So far, so good? All right. Now, Article 8, the saving effectiveness of Christ's death. Now, the next three slides, um, yeah, the next three slides, I, I, I don't have any canned questions or anything. Um, it's essentially, this is the articulation of the Reformed doctrine. So as I go through them, if you have any questions or comments, please, please just fire away. Um, because this kind of summarizes everything that was said in the first seven articles. Or was the, enti- uh, 
For it was the entirely free plan and very gracious will and intention of God the Father that the enlivening and uh, saving effectiveness of his son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect, in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only and thereby lead them without fail uh, to salvation. So there's lots of um, John 6 in this, basically. Um, but, you know, key, key elements here are um, it was God's entirely free plan and very gracious will. In other words, nobody made him do it, right? He wasn't conforming to some other thing. There was no other motivation. It was God's free, entirely free plan. It was his intention. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should be effectively, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father, that Christ should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, he acquired for them by his death. So, again, it was through Christ's death on the, the blood on the cross, that would redeem folks. And then finally, it was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them by his blood from all their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that he should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that he should finally present them to himself a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Um, The idea here, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, the idea of whether sins were committed before or after coming to faith. Um, somebody brought up the, uh, made the point that, you know, we don't have to keep coming to faith, or God doesn't have to continuously be crucified. He was crucified once, <clears throat> we are regenerated once. And then w- once we are regenerated, we are forgiven, we're justified, we're forgiven permanently. And so regardless of, of what we do afterwards, um, God's, uh, when, essentially when the judge looks at us, you know, on judgment day, he will see Christ. Okay? And so it's not like we, um, again, have to apply our, um, or be saved over and over and over again. Yep. Is that scene that, you know, when, when our advocate, the Lord Jesus uh-huh. Christ, stands before the Father mm-hmm. and Satan is barking in his ear about the sins uh-huh. that we are committing now, mm-hmm. and he advocates for us. So that, that picture is mm-hmm. clear in the words, but how does that actually unfold in, right. in the heavenly realm? Right. We, we can't know, but, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful picture. Yeah, it, it is. Um, Christ is our um, is our advocate, and you know, and that brings up a uh, you know a good question. We have a lot of these um, imagery, and you mentioned the, the heavenly realm or the heavenly court. Uh, there's lots of imagery, imagery, and um, you know, how literally do we take the the imagery? How does it actually play out? And it may be exactly as it says, or you know, that could be some kind of I mean, ultimately, it, it it will play out in that way, 
but is that more metaphorical than literal? literal? Right. Good question. Article 9, the fulfillment of God's plan. The plan arising out of God's eternal love for the, um, for the elect. I'm sorry. Every, every time I um, read that, God's eternal love for, for the elect, I know it's terrible, but I think of... Uh, who was it? Uh, was it Dinah Ross? Donna Summer? Eternal love? Come on. Somebody had to be, grew up in the 80s. Nobody? You don't remember that song? Never mind. Yeah, yeah. George, George was too young. So, this, so forget I said that. This plan arising out of God's eternal love for the elect from the, the beginning of the world to the present time has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out in the future. The gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result, the elect are gathered into one, all in their own time, and there is always a church of believers founded on Christ's blood, a church which, which steadfastly loves, uh, persist, persistently worships, and here and, um, and here and in all eternity praises him as her Savior, who laid down his life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for his bride. All right? So, um, Article 9 is kind of a outworking of that election, and so, of Article 8, essentially. And so, I don't think I have, no, oh, that's it. So anyway, um, I kind of expected the, the, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility um, part to run a little bit longer than it did. So we still have about 15 minutes. Are there any questions or thoughts on anything that we've covered so far? No. I was thinking about because I was listening to you at yeah. the end. Uh huh. Um, we, you know, when we come to a point like that where there's two things that are yeah. absolutely true, and then we we discuss them, we mm -hmm. feel compelled to caveat. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not talking about your lesson. I'm talking right. about in in in, in, sure. in just discussions, and we don't need to caveat. Right. You know, it's true. Is is Jesus, was Jesus God? Yeah. Absolutely. Right. 100%. And we don't need to caveat and say, but, you know, and then try to explain the Trinity, because mm -hmm. I, I, I think it robs of this, right. the, the absolute truth that God is sovereign right. over all things, first and foremost, but mm -hmm. certainly flowing out of that is the unfolding of the redeemed church. Mm -hmm. It's God's sovereign plan from the before the foundation of the world. And so right. we, we don't have to then talk about man's responsibility um, because it, w without man ever doing anything, God's plan is still, you know, if we want to become fireside mm -hmm. uh, argumentative, man doesn't have to do anything because God's sovereign plan is mm -hmm. going to trump man's action. But, sure. But, but that's not the way it is, of course. Man yeah. responds in faith because God uh, converts him from mm -hmm. from fleshly death to spiritual life, mm -hmm. and then he grants him faith and repentance. Right. Uh, and well, so the, the thing is, how do I say this? God could have set the world up any way he wanted, right? But 
the way he did set it up is that he works through us. He works through our actions. He works through our wills, that sort of thing. And so I guess that's kind of the point of the whole lecture, for lack of a better word, the whole lesson, is that human responsibility is important because those are the, the, the decisions that we make. And yes, God is sovereign, but, you know, well, I shouldn't say but, I should say and. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. Now, <clears throat> the reason that's important is because I've talked to um, folks. I talked to a, uh, a guy who was a pastor, and he was a, a young pastor, um, and kind of had, you know, was very theologically minded. And there was a funeral, and um, there was uh, essentially a widow. She had w- lost her, her husband, and he was, he was talking to her um, at the funeral, and she was grieving. And he said, well, God is still on his throne. Okay? Yeah, that's true, and that's a wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, that's the most wonderful thing is, is God's glory. Um, but sharing that, making that statement in, a, in that setting with that level of tone deafness um, was something that, you know, he, he understood as soon as he said it how essentially stupid it was for him to say something like that because it was inappropriate at that time. Theology, God's sovereignty, when there's somebody that's hurting, the sovereignty of God should be comforting. But we need to come alongside them and help them to, um, I'll, say, I'll say, be human. We need to, there is a human responsibility aspect to it. Does that make sense? And so, <clears throat> um, so from a pastoral perspective, from a missions perspective, from several, any other, you know, many, many perspectives, it's, it's almost like, yeah, we rest in God's sovereignty, but we strive like we're, like, like we're, we're responsible, right? Understanding that he, he is responsible. And it's no room, there's no room for, um, for boasting. There's no room for, for any of that. It's all to his glory, right? Um, and I guess it's, it's, it's essentially when I look at Jesus' ministry and the way he flipped back and forth between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, I think we, we're called to do the same. We've got to understand both. The only thing I would say is the human responsibility that will respond uh, in mm-hmm. faith mm-hmm. Is, has been changed prior to that mm-hmm. by God. And so, and so, yes, man is responsible, but man is never going to respond unless mm-hmm. God first changes him. And then mm-hmm. we know from the rest of what you've been teaching and are going to uh-huh. teach that, that it's that new nature, that, mm-hmm. that born-again um, <coughs> being that will now respond in a way that, that is guaranteed mm-hmm. by the creation, by yeah. God's creation. So, so, yes, absolutely, we are responsible as humans, but, but the, the human sitting here who is not, 
has not been born again will mm-hmm. never respond that way. Mm-hmm. So, and so, yes, we're responsible, but we're going to believe because mm-hmm. God changes our heart and then He grants it. But when we look at the way that our Lord spoke and the way that He taught, He taught both sides. And, and Paul taught both sides. And I, I feel like we're just following in his footsteps. Yeah. Go Presenting the dichotomy of God's sovereignty right. and human responsibility, the question that comes to my, my mind is human responsibility to what? Right. Responsibility implies some sort of a, a an end of that sentence, like responsible for... Right. What, what are you... In that dichotomy, what are humans responsible for? When you look at the um, the scriptures that I brought up, they are um, most of them were talking about, you know, essentially doing evil, right? So there was uh, Genesis 50, which said, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." There was I also mentioned Isaiah. I also mentioned Acts, um, Matthew. And then when we get into, um, when we uh, got into Matthew 11, Jesus was talking about the, the gospel, but then, uh, I'm sorry, he was talking about God's sovereignty, but then he immediately opened it up to like an open invitation, right? And so um, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is, what's that? To believe. Yeah, yeah. So the responsibility would be both responsible for the evil actions you commit and responsible for repenting of those evil actions? You were responsible for that, yes. Okay. Held responsible for that, yes. I think the responsibility, to me, we are more responsible for our sin than for our belief. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, I, I believe we're responsible for mm-hmm. both. But the condemnation for our sin does not come from God's sovereignty. It comes from our human responsibility that we rebelled against God. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where I think people really fall short. Is the human responsibility begins with recognizing our sin and how we've rebelled against God. And we're in need of a Savior. Mm-hmm. And until someone responds, recognizes that they're not going to come to salvation so there's a there's a there's a responsibility to understand how we have separated ourselves from god yeah and you brought you brought it up in a, in a comment that you made about, yeah. um, about lest anyone should boast you, you right said, and that came of course from ephesians yeah. 2 9 yeah two, yeah eight. And so the, the, the way that God gets all the glory, we use that term, but he, the way he is glorified solely apart from man is by the way he orchestrates mm-hmm. um, his creation and, and the redeemed that, uh, you know, because he grants all of the tools, mm-hmm. and I say grants, right. um, he ensures all of the tools in, that are mm-hmm. in place that the person will respond. And that's why God is glorified, because if there were any part of man operating apart from God's mm-hmm. sovereignty, then, then man would get the glory. And that, that's, I think that's my point. But right. The the day, but, but then to use that language, using in other ways, we 
are responsible. Paul was responsible to mm-hmm. pray for, for his brothers in the flesh. Uh-huh. And he prayed for them. Um, and we're responsible to pray. Mm-hmm. We have those responsibilities. Right. They're connected. That's uh, a different kind of responsibility, but those are... Right. So, so in, in the end... Um, it kind of goes back to something that we talked about last week, which is when I made the statement, I was talking about um, you know presenting the gospel to people in in different ways, right? Same gospel, but kind of wrapping it in a different envelope, or you know having the same message in a different envelope. And the idea there is. Um, if I, if I talk to somebody that's an atheist, I'm going to approach them from one perspective. And if I talk to somebody that um, was raised in church, maybe they believe in God, but you know, they're, they're, not, they're not a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to approach them from, from a different perspective. And I'm going to, if I have time to prepare, I'm going to do a lot of work in preparation. I'm going to do a lot of prayer in preparation. But regardless of the outcome of, of that conversation, um, my hard work is not what brought them to faith, right? And we'll, we'll agree on that. But at the same time, I think it's a legitimate, it's legitimate to strive for that sort of thing, to encourage people to, to strive for, um, for educating themselves and for reading and for being familiar with, um, what somebody, if they're going to share the gospel with somebody, Understanding their audience. I think it's our responsibility to do that sort of thing. Now, does God, um, do we, is God dependent on us? No. Again, we agree with it. Well, yeah, so like I said last week, um, the first place I go is Acts 13, and I look at who Paul's um, audience was, and it was Jews. And how did he present the gospel? He started with, he essentially he did a synopsis of the Old Testament, right? Then you fast forward four chapters, and he's in Athens, um, Acts 17, and he begins in a completely different way. And he, it's, it's, it's a completely different presentation, because he knew who his audience was. And so, it even comes down to his language, right? Um, he said, the God who created the world and everything in it. He doesn't use Jewish terminology when he's talking to the folks in Athens. He didn't say heavens and earth because that's a Jewish thing. He said cosmos because that's a Greek thing, right? And it's, those are, I mean, they're, com- they're pointing to the same Christ and it's the same gospel, but presented in radically different ways, right? So I use him as... Great, no, it's Greek. Well, it was written in Greek. That's what we have. Probably Greek. Yeah, because they were Hellenized Jews in um, in Asia Minor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but uh, but then we also go to the four Gospels, right? There's one Gospel, four Gospel accounts. I always try to catch myself on that. One Gospel, four Gospel accounts. Okay. Um, we have four different gospel accounts. If you look at Matthew, Matthew has a Jewish audience. 
And the reason we say that is because it's, it's base, it, there's a lots of appeal to the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah and, um, you know, genealogies and there's lots of, uh, there's no explanation of like Jewish, um, traditions and things of that nature. If you look at Luke, he's, it's written to a Gentile audience. So it's the same Jesus, it's the same gospel, but there's a different audience. So Luke, um, you know, wrote it in a, in a different way than Matthew did. And then Mark is written to Romans. And so his is the suffering servant and written in a different way. And then John still even has a more of a different audience. Now we pull those four things together. They were all from the very beginning inspired by the Holy Spirit, you know, um, but there was four different audiences. And so Jesus was presented to different audiences in different ways. Cool part about that is we can look and we can get a better understanding of who he is because we can see it from four different perspectives, right? And so <clears throat> I think it's very biblical to, to say that you um, present the gospel to your audience in ways that they can understand. You try to relate to them and present. You don't... You don't compromise Jesus. What you do is you see where they are and you connect them to Jesus. Right? Sure. We didn't add to the gospel. We're not adding to the gospel. You don't, I, you, you don't have to, but I think you should. I mean, that, that's, that, that's the thing. We, I mean, we are, we're love, to love God with our, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We tend to forget that mind part, right? Christianity... That, that's not, I don't think I would use that in, in the discussion about whether or not I should broaden my understanding. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but let me, let me, because I don't want to drag this out, but it's, but, but, and it's because I'm simple, uh-huh. uh, you know, and sometimes I'm, Fred, you, you talk about it, mm-hmm. and, and I can oversimplify Right. The, yeah, to, to kind of hopefully, you know, help you understand this, what Fred is saying is, okay, if you had planned to have lunch on Monday with Mormon. Okay, it'd probably be good for you to understand a little bit about if you happen to run into him at the grocery store, for example, hey, you don't have time to, to go, well, wait here, let me go study up. No, you just, you share what God puts on your heart at that point. So at different points in your life, it's good to be studious in preparing of what you're going to talk about. But at other points, you just you've got to trust God to, to speak for you. And I think mm-hmm. that's his, his point: is that when you have that time to uh, address your audience in a manner that will be easier for them to understand, you should use it. But and this is the point I was going to get to um, is that. Possible for them to understand right. God. So there's no 
there's no amount of that extra material that we give mm -hmm. them that's going to help them get to faith. That's, that's, it, that's the, the core of the gospel. Mm -hmm. that, that it requires God to change their heart. And then once God changes their heart and they're mm -hmm. born again, which we all mm -hmm. we all agree in the word saluted, that yep. ordo saluted, that mm -hmm. God must must be born again first. Right. So at that point, simplistic gospel is going to be all that's necessary to say. So I'm, I'm just let me understand why that simple understanding isn't correct. Because right. Yeah, uh, she's saying uh, God meets us uh, where we are. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, go ahead. Is it, is it sufficient for a believer to know and study scripture mm -hmm. and, and not study other religions? Is it still sufficient to share the gospel and to be like, okay, hey, so like if I come and say, hey, you know, church, I'm just going to church. Of course. So I understand it's good to know and I knew a guy named Eddie. Eddie is one of my favorite people that I've ever met in, the li in my life. Eddie was on fire for Christ. Okay? We were on our way to Mexico on a mission trip, and we were, I forget where we, we stopped. Um, I was pumping gas, and he got out, and he was throwing tracks in like every gas pump. You know, that was at the, at the gas station. Okay. What's that? You, you probably have. Yeah. And so, um, and so, and that wasn't just because we were going on a mission trip. And so he was in a spiritual mood or anything like that. That was because Eddie breathed the gospel. Every waitress or waiter that he ever encountered got the gospel. Everybody. Right. And it was, what's that? We all need a little Eddie. I'm, I'm with you on that, right? But and when he talked to people, um, if some, one of the things that we could say is it was a mile wide and it was an inch deep, right? That's one way to say it. That's a derogatory way of saying it. But another way to say it is he was throwing seeds. He was doing as he was commanded to do. He was throwing seeds. And that is what God put on his heart, and that is exactly what he, what he did. There's other people that are going to perhaps come in behind Eddie and, and take people to a, a, um, a deeper level, right? Um, answer questions at a deeper level, different, different things like that. And here's the thing, God doesn't need Eddie, right? And God doesn't need the person that's going to the deeper level. And God doesn't need people to study Greek and Hebrew. And God doesn't need people to do all these other God doesn't need any of us. But he uses us for his glory, um, in sharing the gospel, bringing people to faith, that sort of thing, right? Um, and so the idea is, and this is exactly why I kind of really wanted to talk about human responsibility and, and divine sovereignty, because God, um, if you remember back when Mike Garrett was teaching, and he was teaching on divine sovereignty, he was teaching the same thing that I'm teaching, but he used more philosophical terms like secondary causes, right? Now, those are true. I agree with them, but I just I like using more biblical language. 
Not that that's not biblical, but it's just different language. Stephen, you've been real patient. Oh, it's gone? All right. All right. So, um, so anyway, it's just, it's, you know, you look at Romans, Romans 10, and it says, you know, how will they, how will they believe if they've never heard? Well, does that mean that God is dependent upon me or you to go? No, it doesn't. But he gave us the honor of being used in that way. Okay, and so, again, I'm not saying that somebody has to go get a Ph.D. in ancient languages or anything like that in order to be useful to God. Different people are used in different ways. You look at the... Um, uh, you look in, you know, First Corinthians, and it talks about the different body parts. You know, um, you know, the big toe and the eye, and you know, the heart and liver and kidneys and all of that. Each one of those parts is is vital to to who a, a human being is. And just like um, evangelists, teachers, preachers, the the, the various gifts, uh, spiritual gifts, are vital to a, a thriving church, right? And so different, he wires different people in different ways, gives them different gifts in order to, um, to grow his church and be, and be glorified. And it's just, it's an honor to be used by that. So, cool. You want to close this? Sure. Father, thank you for uh, revealing your nature to us through your word. Thank you for uh, your sovereignty to to choose us to be a part of your family, to accomplish redemption in each of us by your sovereign grace. And Father, thank you for giving us the responsibility, the privilege of serving you. And I pray that you would uh, reveal to us the opportunities to, to share Christ with others, that you would be glorified and you'd use us for the good of, of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.